You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning, everybody. I have an invisible face mask on this morning. You're going to have to pretend with me that you can see it as well. I will be wearing one out there. And for everybody at home, we're so glad that you're joining us today. We hope that you uh, don't have a face mask on. But these are the bold few who came out today to join us live in worship, to put your kids in services. And we have taken every knowable precaution to try to protect you and others. We've been bathing this place in prayer and bathing all of you in prayer and also all of you at home. And we're just so glad to be together. What I wanted to do is that when we first came back together with everybody, kids, full programming, the whole nine yards, I wanted to take a series to remind ourselves why we do what we do and why we are who we are, and that's what this series is. So let's jump in today. The series is called Compelled, but I want to start by asking you a question first. Who is the greatest basketball player of all time? Now, hang on. Before I show you any pictures, you got in your mind who it is? So we're here, and somebody said Kobe. I don't have him up here. So anyway, since we're in Indiana, I thought I'd at least put this gentleman up first, though he rarely makes it into the debate. Does anybody think this is the greatest basketball player of all time? Did any of you people clapping go to Indiana State University? I'm just checking. So Larry Bird's statistics are phenomenal, but very rarely even makes it into the conversation. Most people would say his contemporary, Magic Johnson, is possibly in the conversation, but not Larry himself. That's fine, that's fine. I'm from, born in the 70s, grew up in the 80s, and so my favorite basketball player of all time is this guy, uh, LeBron James. (laughs) It's not where you thought I was gonna go, was it? That's also because I'm from Northeast Ohio, from Akron, Ohio, and I'd like to say that I was there first, but regardless, is LeBron James the greatest basketball player of all time, anybody? kind of how I thought that would go. I thought I might get one person. So thank you for all of you. Apparently every LeBron fan is at home watching today. How about this one? Last one, last one. Michael Jordan. Just because you watched the documentary just now. I actually was going to add a fourth one. It was a picture of me and I was going to say, you know, I was undefeated at the men's retreat this year. I'm just saying, but thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You didn't get to see me play. You wouldn't be clapping. Anyway, How about this? For those of you maybe ladies who aren't real big, you know, sports or basketball fans, maybe you prefer this. Which of these three shows is the best to you? Is it? What's it called? Fixer Upper? But if it's not Fixer Upper, is it Flip or Flop? No? How about Love It or List It? Anybody? Okay, so who says Fixer Upper? Okay, who says uh, flip or flop? All right, who says love it or list it? Woo! LeBron fan probably too. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, I'm with you. All right, so this past week, we were in a meeting, and the meeting was about something totally different, but we had a couple staff members who were running late from another meeting. I don't even know how it came up. We end up in a conversation about who the greatest quarterback of all time is. What happened over the next five to ten minutes was an all-out, no holds barred, on the mat, wrestling match over who the greatest quarterback was. Now, nobody actually got out of their chair. We kept six feet distance at all times. But it became very heated very quickly. Have you ever been in that conversation? Like, you just start saying names of people, and people start getting really upset over who the greatest quarterback of all time is. And it's funny how passionate we get about this, isn't it? 
Like people start like yelling, their voice starts raising, people start making these irrational statements whatsoever. People start saying things like, well, if this guy, let's show the first guy, had played on better teams, or one person said, if he'd had Tony Dungy the whole time, who knows how many Super Bowls he might have won. Who says that's the best quarterback of all time? We might have bias, since this is Peyton Manning, for those of you listening online down the road. But obviously, it's hard to get around this guy's statistics. I mean, so I had a different picture up there, one of Tom Brady without his helmet, looking all debonair and smooth, and Amos, the guy who just led worship for us, is one into the slides, and he went and grabbed that one instead. <laughs> Amos is definitely a Colts fan, so... Regardless, I thought it was funny that he picked that picture of all pictures. But Tom Brady, one of the guys in the argument said, he's going to have all the statistics. He's going to have all the records. He's going to have more trophies than anybody. And I said, so what? LeBron may do that too, and you still think Michael's better. Isn't it funny how passionate we get when I put that up? How many of you, your blood started to boil, and you started wondering if you came back to church too soon? Anybody? All right, but we're almost done because, see, if you were born in my generation, see, if you go back further, you may have other guys in mind. But if you were born in my generation, it wasn't Peyton Manning or Tom Brady. It was this guy. Anybody? A few people in their 40s? Okay. Guys, remember, this is Joe Montana. Some of you are like, who is that guy? Look at that grainy picture. Did they, what was that? What was that? Is that taken on a, uh, what was that thing where the picture would spit out? Anyway. Yeah, they are. Polaroid. Okay. Thank you. But I have to tell you, here's who I think is the greatest quarterback of all time. I mean, if you can throw it over a mountain, then you ought to be listed as the greatest quarterback of all time. Some of you don't even know who that is. That's Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. Don't go watch it. I'll save you two hours. But anyway, <laughs> here's my point. When we get really excited, when we get really passionate about things, it is no holds barred, isn't it? Like, how many of you want to sit up here and maybe discuss why one of these things is better than another? And I could pick any of them. I could pick your favorite restaurant. I could pick your favorite food type. I could pick whatever it is. Favorite TV show, favorite pastor. No, that would be easy. We don't know that one. Anyway, it'd be easy, wouldn't it, to, to pick something. All of a sudden, we're going. We're going. How about this? Who should be president this year? Oh, see, you already got an opinion, right? I just proved my point. We could talk about what laws or rules or things ought to be in place. We ought to talk. We could talk about face masks. Should you wear a face mask? Should you not? I, trust me, I, it's okay. I get it. The room is going to be divided. The entire church, those sitting at home, are going to be divided. But what compels us? What compels us to show such great compassion? Or sorry, not compassion, passion. What compels us to do that? Well, I think there's an answer. We're going to get to that by the end of this. And then the question is, what do we do with all that passion? There's a guy in the Bible, for those of you who are new today, or maybe checking out God, you just don't know much about the Bible. I'm not going to assume anything. So if you've been doing church for a really long time, some of what I'm going to say today sounds really easy and really obvious. But for those who are maybe newer to this, this may be the first time they've heard some of these things. So go with me as I remind those of us who have been doing it for a while who God is and what he's like and what he's doing in the world, and then encourage and teach those who maybe don't know these things. There's a guy in the Bible. His name is Paul. That's what we know him as. Before his name was Paul, his name was Saul. Now, when he was Saul, he was one of the best of the best Pharisees. A Pharisee was a religious group in Jesus' day, in the first century. They were kind of the keepers of the law. In fact, nobody was more moral than they were. They studied the Old Testament laws. They had laws on top of those laws, and they went out of their way to obey them, and nobody obeyed them better than they did. 
They believed passionately, for instance, in the tithe. They would go through their own garden and literally count up their herbs and divide them. Imagine like pulling mint or cumin out of the ground and, and dividing it into a tenth, a tiny leaf, to make sure that they gave exactly to God what belonged to his. We, they would be what we would call today legalistic in their approach, but you have to understand, they believed that that was the right way to approach God. And then Paul, who was at one point Saul, says he was the best of the best. There was no Pharisee greater than him. And that wasn't intended to be a knock. That's not intended to be a slam. Like we might say that today in our context, say, well, there was no Pharisee better than him. And there's an unintended consequence, like, like backhanded slap to that statement. But there wasn't for Paul. He was truly trying to follow after God and obey God. But he became so powerful, so well known at such a young age that he'd learned to make his enemies fear him. And those who were for him just loved him. He quickly moved through the ranks of power and prominence and authority to where he could literally, and he does literally, gets laws passed so that he can go and have these new Christian believers arrested and thrown into prison. Even worse than that, he's seen at the stoning of a guy named Stephen. Stephen is one of the early church leaders. And Saul at the time, before he's changed to Paul, He's standing there watching as they kill this man, and then they bring Saul his clothes. And the reason we're told that is because it looks as if Saul has organized a stoning of a man. Imagine a day where you were so passionate about somebody being wrong that you're willing to organize all of your neighbors grabbing rocks and throwing them at the guy until he dies. And you believe in your heart you've done the right thing before the Lord and also the legal thing under the law. Now, some of you may be able to relate with that because when somebody posts something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and you disagree with it, you get so passionate, you wonder what stone you can throw. Except for we don't throw stones, literal stones today. We just end up deleting everything, canceling everything, unfollowing everything, shutting people off, firing off a comment, making some bold, possibly even rude statement. Now, that doesn't mean, and I want to be clear because sometimes I get involved in passionate discussion about important topics, but there's a way to do it that's pleasing to Christ. But you can understand where the Saul guy is coming from. Well, it's in the very next chapter of the book of Acts. He's walking along on the road to Damascus, and a light shines down out of heaven, and it's Jesus. And Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't know what to do. He has spent his time arresting Christians and even overseeing killing Christians. See, God is about to flip this man's world upside down. No longer is his drive in life going to be about himself. No longer is his drive in life going to be about being good enough. No longer is his drive in life about being the best or looking the best or playing a part. From now on, something different is going to compel him. Exactly is that thing? Well, he would later write in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he'd write this. He says, I have worked much harder. I've been in prison more frequently. I've been flogged more severely. I've been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. That's what the law allowed them to do. They had to do 40 minus one because 40 was the max in case they counted wrong. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked." So you often hear me say this, but if you're visiting today, if you're watching online, I hate something called the prosperity gospel. And the prosperity gospel says, come to faith in God. He wants you to be healthy and rich and wise. And then you read a paragraph like this from Paul and you go, man, God must have hated Paul. No, 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 no. This is the exact opposite. Paul was compelled by something to the point where he was willing to do whatever it takes, to lay down whatever it takes, to give whatever it takes For what purpose, though? You know, in addition to all the physical things that Paul suffered on behalf of Jesus Christ, he goes on in the next two verses and he says this, besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Who's weak? And I don't feel weak. Who's led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. Do you get what he's saying? When Paul goes to bed at night, he doesn't think about the lashes on his back. I'm sure he thinks of it a little bit. But when he goes to bed at night, he's not pondering the fact that he was shipwrecked or that he might not have food or drink. When he goes to bed at night, the one thing that's burning in his heart, the thing that's burning in his mind is you. Now, it would be the use of his day, but he's thinking about the gospel going to the ends of the earth. That... And there are still people who do not know. And if they don't hear, and if they don't receive, then they will go into a Christless eternity. In fact, in the book of Romans, he actually goes on when he writes the book of Romans, and he says, I would be willing, if it were possible, to give my own life for my own fellow brothers, the Jews, who do not believe. But he decides that's impossible. I can't trade my salvation for theirs. So instead, what I will give is my life. So he lives his life like this, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. And I don't know about you, but I read that and it motivates me. It's a world I can't understand. It's a world I can't relate with. I don't know about you, regardless of where you think we are in America right now, I've heard all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. I don't know. I know this. Nobody's chasing me down with stones or guns or anything else because of my faith in Jesus here in America. Now, it does happen in other parts of the world. When we sent a missionary team to India to visit our missionary partners a few years ago, one of the, uh, the, our pastors at the time, a guy named Steve Boland, stood up and he asked them as he was preaching, he said, how many of you have been persecuted for your faith or how many of you have had your families persecuted for your faith in almost the entire room? I think all but two pastors out of 70 stood up. And then he pressed in further because he thought maybe they didn't understand the question. So we clarified the question and he asked it more specifically and the same thing happened. Their families were being threatened, their lives were being threatened, their livelihood were being threatened, their homes were being threatened. And so what was their answer? Keep going. But what would compel them, what would compel Paul to show such great passion? Well, he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He gives us the answer. He says this, Christ love compels Because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. 
Now, Paul is teased by Peter in the scriptures of being confusing. I don't know if you know that. It's this great little sentence. Peter writes, sometimes Paul is confusing in what he says. And all of us who've ever read Romans go, yep. So it's not hard to see why Peter felt that way. But if you just dig in, this one's not hard to get. This one's not hard to understand. Let's just deal with the second part first. We're convinced that one died for all, therefore all died. That seems like a confusing sentence, but it's not. Who was the one that died for all? That's clearly Jesus Christ. Therefore, all died. So what does he mean there? Well, we see this unpacked in many of his other writings. It's not hard to figure out where he's going here. He's simply saying that because all of us are under the weight and the burden of sin, because we carry sin on our shoulders, it needs dealt with, and we carry it around every single day. When a loved one dies, do you know why they died? Sin. I'm not saying it was their sin. It's just the fact that we live in a world that is ruined and wrecked by sin. When your family falls apart because your spouse is addicted to alcohol or gambling or whatever it might be, why did it fall apart? Sin. When your children rebel and that rebellion sits in their heart and they become prideful and stubborn and even into their adult years they refuse to have a relationship with you, why did that happen? Sin. And when your boss asks you to do something and you refuse to do it because you know more than the boss and you lose your job, why did that happen? Sin. In the, it could go on and on and on and on and on, giving situation for situation for situation for situation. But sin is the problem, and we all carry this weight, the burden of sin on our shoulders. But then Jesus came, and he died for all. And since he died for all, that tells us everyone was going to die, but anybody willing to come to him, all they have to do is say, here I am. And they're now covered under his love. God's justice required that every wrongdoing be held accountable, but it was held accountable in the one who died for all. So that when he went to the cross, I no longer get what I deserve, I get grace instead. And grace literally means God's favor. So it's Christ's love that compels us. Paul realizes that all of his greatest efforts to become the best of the best of the best left him wanting. He knew in his heart, like so many of us do, there's a gap. He's trying harder and harder and harder, but he can't seem to be good enough. And then he meets Jesus and he realizes that all of his efforts don't do anything to bring him closer to God, that something had to be done outside of him. And that compels him, that even when he's suffering, He accepts in himself that other people who may be doing evil to him, that the world that has gone wrong and may be broken, like when a ship wrecks, that it's okay because God's love is still with him and they, the people, don't yet know him and it's his job to show them God's love, often at personal sacrifice. The word compelled literally means to be directed The analogy is like a river, is directed by a channel. I've got a picture for you. Who's directing who here? Now, if there were a massive, say, worldwide flood, this would look totally different. The river would win the day. Oh, by the way, not to take an analogy and break it, because you could break any analogy you want, but isn't that true for you and I? You can do what you want. You can harden your heart and say, God, no, I'm gonna do what I want when I want, how I want, don't care what you say. And you could overpower the channels. But by and large, isn't this weird? What would make a river flow backwards and over and around? And the answer is the channel. And that's actually the word picture for the word compel. 
So when Paul says Christ's love compels us, what he's saying is Christ's love directs us like a river that follows the channel. In other words, when we who call ourselves Christians, whether you're watching at home or here live, we who are surrendered to Christ, his love directs our steps so that we don't do what we want, we do what he wants. We don't do what our flesh wants, we do what he wants. We seek to obey him even at personal cost or sacrifice. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy 1, 15. Here's a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. In other words, don't even argue, even in the slightest, over this one. Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Who is the greatest sinner of all time? Well, Paul argues himself. When I was a teenager and trying to figure out God's word and I'd be reading it for myself and I didn't really have anybody to explain it, I'd go, does he mean like in the past when he was killing people? Paul would say, no. The reality of Paul's sin condition is he realizes in his flesh that he is prone to wander. Ever heard that phrase in an old Christian hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That's Paul. And he knows it. It's not that, you know, if you create this sin list of best to worst sins, like if you're going to do it, do these. But if you're, you know, stay away from these kind of thing, Paul would be doing these. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is he knows the propensity of his own heart to do what he ought not to do. He talks about this extravagantly in Romans chapter 7. But when he comes to that place of recognizing his own brokenness and need for a savior, every time he looks at Jesus and he realizes, 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Do you see it? Paul believes in his heart that he's not worthy, but God loves him anyway. And that fuels everything that he does. There's another guy in the Bible I don't have time to spend that much time on his story, but his name is Peter. You've probably heard of Peter. You've probably heard about him in a joke. If you're visiting with us, maybe you don't know this God guy. You're still figuring out Jesus. Peter, you know, the guy who shows up at the pearly gates and he's always letting people in and all the jokes. You know what I'm talking about, that Peter. Well, when Peter first met Jesus, he was a business owner. He owned a small fishing business, but he was a self-made man. He made plenty of money. He fished along with some other people, family, and another guy, two brothers named James and John. Well, they end up, all three of them, becoming disciples. And what's fascinating to me about Peter's story is throughout Peter's story, he's quickly located by Jesus as one of the strongest leaders in the group, but he's an uneducated man. He's a fisherman that's not a knock in any way. He had more of a blue-collar training. So I don't mean uneducated in the sense we think of today. I just mean he wasn't trained like the rabbis. He wasn't this great religious theologian, but yet Jesus chose him and two other fishermen to be the main guys. In fact, every time Jesus does something individual, Peter, James, and John, one of the three are with him because Jesus is pouring extra into them. But that gets them puffed up on who is the greatest among them. See, when a king would rule, he would put somebody on his left and somebody on his right. And so these three guys are often seen fighting and arguing over which one of them is going to have the position of prominence when Jesus finally becomes king. And they fight about it so much that Jesus has to stop and rebuke them at times in the scriptures. 
But finally, at the end of Peter's life, Jesus tells him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this day is over. Peter's like, no way, not me, God. No way, not me, Jesus. But he does it anyway. And by the time the rooster crows three times, he's denied him. And so we find ourselves at the cross, and Peter is nowhere to be seen. He doesn't, he's not even around. He's not even watching. John shows up, so does Mary and some of the other ladies who follow Jesus around. But Peter, he's hiding. He's embarrassed. He's ashamed. And he's afraid. And then we jump fast forward to the book of Acts, and he's standing up before everybody on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. He's telling everybody about Jesus. How in the world did we get this guy who's running and hiding in shame to this guy who's standing up and boldly proclaiming what happened? What compelled him to show such great passion? And the short answer, but important answer, is the love of God shown through Jesus Christ. See, in John chapter 21, I've preached on this many times, but in John chapter 21, Jesus comes to Peter and he meets him. This is after he's died on the cross, after he rose from the dead, and it's the last chapter in the book of John. It's the end of the story in the book of John. There's more written in Matthew and in Luke, but in John, this is it. This is where it ends, and it ends here for a reason, and I want you to see something unique in the story. John chapter 21, verse 17, it says this. Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? See, Jesus came to Peter, and he said, do you love me? And Peter goes, you know I love you. He said, so feed my sheep. And then he asked him again, do you love me? You know, Lord, you know I love you. So feed my lambs. And he asked him again, do you love me? And this time, the third time, Peter gets frustrated. He says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says the same thing he said the first time. Again, feed my sheep. Then he goes on. Now, don't miss this. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and you went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. I'm going somewhere, I promise. What would compel Peter from one moment hiding in the upper room for fear to going. History records that Peter was crucified, possibly upside down. We can't confirm whether he was crucified upside down or not. The sources are a little bit shaky. We aren't sure. But it is written in history that he was crucified and upside down, that they went to crucify him much later in his life, and then he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord Jesus. So they literally put him upside down. Crucifixion is one of the most terrifying, terrible, excruciating, it's actually where the word excruciating comes from, crucifixion, deaths a person could suffer. What would make a man who at one point hid for his life boldly go forward and say, I don't care. I'm willing to give whatever it takes. And the answer is this very picture. A picture of Christ's love. A picture of Jesus hanging on a cross. One that I see is clearly not on the TV right now. Hey, that's not it. Apparently we didn't get that picture in there. We'll fix it for next service. Imagine Jesus hanging on a cross. This is what compels Peter. This is what compels Paul. And listen, this is what compels us. 
I'm gonna just be a pastor for a second, okay? Some of you were very frustrated that we didn't hold church over the last few months. Some of you are frustrated that we're doing it now. Some of you are glad we're doing it now, but believed we shouldn't have done it over the last few months. And if I could create some sort of continuum, my guess is people would line up somewhere on that continuum. We've heard from many of you, certainly not all of you. I've been talking to pastors lately. In fact, I had a really good conversation with um, our former lead pastor, John Caldwell, this week, and uh, just talking about the uniqueness of this situation. It is unique. It's like nothing the world has ever seen. On this wide of a scale, Certainly, churches have never experienced anything on this wide of a scale. So what do we do? What do you do in a situation where nothing you've ever read, nothing you've ever been trained for, and you have to make a decision on how to lead? Well, one thing I would say is we appreciate your grace as a church. We're trying to figure it out too, but that's not even why I'm trying to say this. I have been deeply, deeply, like keep me up at night, keeps me listening and reading and praying and talking and even this morning going for a jog, just wrestling with God, wrestling with what does it mean to be compelled by the love of Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be fully surrendered to whatever he wants in your life? And church, for those of you who are either watching online or here right now, if you love Jesus, my encouragement to you is this. Wherever the Lord leads you, you follow. I get it. Some of you have health issues and health challenges. Some of you are older or whatever the situation may be. Fear is winning the day on every level of the spectrum, the political conversation, the virus, and everything. But please, above all else, do not be afraid to be compelled by the love of Jesus Christ. If that, yeah, you can stop and clap for that. If that means giving up your own time to have a conversation with someone who's hurting, the world is hurting right now. The world is terrified right now. And the world needs you. It needs you to pause your busy schedules. It needs you to pause your personal desires. The world needs somebody infused and directed by the love of Jesus Christ who could gaze upon the cross and see him crucified and hanging there and go, you know what? My life is worth nothing unless I live it for him. And how exactly you do that, I don't know. It's gonna be different for everybody. I only ask that you don't let your flesh and your fear compel you, but rather let the love of Jesus compel you. If you are arrogant and haughty and puffed up on pride like Paul was, humble yourself under the mighty weight of God and let Jesus lift you up. If you are arrogant and haughty but afraid and terrified and insecure like Peter, then I only ask that you humble yourself and let Jesus lift you up. But no matter what, the reality is we are all blinded by sin, our own sin, our desire to succeed and be comfortable, our desire for ease and more, all of us. And I am making no statement. So if anything I'm saying, I've not even said anything to apply it specifically to you. If anything I'm saying is offensive to you, it's because the Holy Spirit is trying to get your attention and say something, whatever that is, to you specifically. It's not always gonna be easy. So a couple weeks ago, I told on myself, so I wanna, I wanna tell the other side of the story. 
A couple weeks ago, I told you in a sermon that God convicted me that to sell stuff and then use that money, leverage that money to feed people who are hungry. And so uh, finally, I got around to fixing this riding lawnmower, which really all fixing did was uh, me and put gasoline in it and buy a key because I lost the key. But I got the, the lawnmower up and going and I got it out of my shed and I pulled it around to the front and I made sure it worked. So I cut my grass and I took a picture out on Facebook. You saw it. I put it on Facebook and my phone blew up. Apparently, I picked the right price point. Like my phone's blew up, like people texting nonstop. I got all these messages coming in and coming in fast. And I just started praying, like, God, help me. I've been praying this all along. God, help me. Whoever I end up dealing with, may I be able to love them. And then if people are angry, maybe able to love them. I got people who want to drive from an hour or two hours away and they're renting and borrowing trucks and trailers and will you just hold it for me? I'm like, man, I'm sorry, I can't hold it because if you show up and you don't want it, I'm not gonna lose the deal, I'm so sorry. And so people are doing this and they're mad at me and they're frustrated. I'm just trying to send a message out and say, look, here's what I'm doing, here's the purpose, here's my hope, like I get it, please forgive me, give me grace. The person who showed up, the first person who showed up bought the mower. Now, if, if you're watching online, I'm not gonna say your name, but if you're watching online, thank you for tuning in. But this man showed up and his dad is dying of cancer. And um, this took way more time in my Saturday than I wanted. And I'm sitting here thinking as we're sitting there talking, my father-in-law just died, my mom's had two bouts of cancer. What if God answered your prayer and he's asking you to give up your time to sit here and have this conversation? So we're standing in my garage and we're just talking and he's talking and I'm listening and he's sharing and I talk a little bit and I finally just look at him and say, hey, what's your dad's name? And he tells me, and I say, I'm gonna pray for him. And we talk a little bit more, and I just felt God say, that is such a wimpy way out. When he leaves, you're gonna pray for him. You know, I get paid to do this for a living, right? <laughs> so after he talked a little bit, I said, hey, um, I am gonna pray for you when you leave, but would you be okay with that? pray for you now, like right now? And he gave me this look. And he kind of leaned back away from me. And I was so uncomfortable. Like about three second pause, it felt like a year, and I was like, it's okay if you don't want to. You don't have to. And he said, no, I'm gonna pray with you. I was like, okay. And then I was like, uh-oh, what do I say? <laughs> so I put my hand on his shoulder, and I just prayed. I didn't know what to pray. In my head, like I'm praying two things. I'm praying with my mouth, and I'm praying in my head, and I'm like, God, I don't know what to say. Like, bleh. You ever feel like that? Like, it's not just like, I get paid to do this for a living. I don't know. Like, I don't know what to pray. And I'm even asked him before I prayed, like, do we pray for your dad's healing? Like, it, we're pretty far along now. Do I pray for a miracle? Like, what am, I, what am I praying for? Like, if I do that, if I put my neck out there and I pray for a miracle, it doesn't happen. Like, am I gonna drive a wedge between you and God already? So I just decided to be bold. And I prayed for a miracle, but I said, God, we want your will to be done and we don't want his dad to suffer. So if he's not gonna be healed, would you just do it mercifully and quickly, but not like today quickly, God, would you give a deep and profound conversation? And then here's my prayer, and here's my crazy bold prayer. I said, would you, just, would you just, God, give him immediate relief right now so that when he talks to his dad later today, he can actually say something was different today. I don't know what it was. I just felt a little better today. And God, use that as a way to point him to you. And uh, we talked a little bit longer. I found out that he at one point was connected to God, but he lost his mom and now his dad, and he's, he's angry. I don't know where God's gonna take that. And I really hope he's not online and embarrassed that I'm telling this story publicly. I didn't say your name. Here's my point. I'm not, I'm not trying to point, pat myself on the back. I'm not. I struggle with this like you because nobody's coming to beat me with a rod. I live in a nice house and a nice community and I'm here at church with hundreds of you. Thank you, God, for that. I don't feel guilty that I live in America. I praise God that I live in America. 
but I'm compelled to not live for me. And I walk inside with the money from the lawnmower. My kids are like, how much do we get, Dad? I'm like, you didn't help sell this, so you get none. <laughs> and all of this is going to go away. For $11 a week, we could feed a family. And you're a Miguas, Peru, and that's what we're doing. I'd love to spend those few hundred dollars on me. But I don't need anything. Maybe I had another way I was going to end the sermon, but I'm going to end it right here like this instead. How is Christ's love compelling you? Have you forgotten how loved you are because of a pandemic and you haven't been here together? You are precious and adored. How is Christ's love compelling Here's what we're gonna do right now. We're gonna take communion. And look, communion's weird right now because we're trying to be quarantine communion. But you grabbed one of these little cups, I hope, on the way in. If not, grab one on your way out. Take communion later today. Make sure you grab one next week on your way in. Now, these are tricky, okay? Because if you just yank on the tab, you're gonna end up with juice all over you and you won't be to the bread. So you kind of have to pick apart the top part. For those of you watching at home online, while I do this, it'd be a great time for you to go grab communion. For the love of all that is holy, I can't get it. (laughs) Ha ha, I win the day. All right, yes, thank you. I just want you to take this bread out, okay? This is our first official Sunday together with kids programming in, uh, what's it been, four months? Too many. But this bread still represents something. There's a word we use theologically for Jesus. It's called incarnation. It describes when God came out of heaven and he came to earth. That's Jesus. But when Jesus went back up in heaven, do you know he left the body behind? That's you. You're the hands and the feet and the arms and the legs of Jesus. And so every time we eat this, We remember him coming here, but we remember that he left us here. This is the fellowship of the believers together, both at home and here right now. I'm gonna say a prayer and then we're all gonna take this bread together. Father, thank you. We are compelled by this bread to be the body. Lord, I pray for each of us to be directed like a river in the channel of your love. That wherever you want us to go and whatever you want us to do, Father, we would just be surrendered to your spirit at any moment. And even when we aren't sure if it's right to just follow and obey because our conscience convicted us and that's your spirit leading us. Father, we love you. And we thank you abundantly for your mercy and your grace. The mercy and the grace that changed Peter, the mercy and the grace that changed Paul, let it change us. In Jesus' name, let's take the bread. This juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Pour it out so that we could be made right with God. There are two important things I want you to get right now. Number one, Stay humble, my friends. 
whatever is in your life, whatever is in your body, in your family that needs to be brought to God, it's a barrier, it's sin. The blood of Jesus has covered it and washed it. And I'm going to give you a moment to just lift it up to Jesus briefly, quickly. But then secondly, this is a celebration. We drink this not with a heavy heart. We drink this with a light heart saying, God, even though I have sin, even though I'm the chief of sinners like Paul, thank you, Jesus, for life. Because without this, I don't have any. So I'm going to start a prayer and then I'll just be silent and I'll hand it to you and you pray and I'm going to say amen and we're going to take this together. Let's pray. Father, oh God, we love you. What we hold in our hands is our redemption and our salvation. We drink your grace. And Lord, we know this juice represents something so valuable, so expensive. May we never lose sight of what it means for us. May we continue to be compelled by this juice by your love. Father, hear our prayers now as we just lift up to you anything that is a barrier between us and you, and we give it to you today.